Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology is Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? Do you want to play restaurant with me? I'm in a great <laughs> mood, Ed, because I rewatched the sack lunch bunch today mm-hmm. and I hadn't seen it since it came out, which for us in the UK it was about Christmas time on Netflix mm. and I had forgotten somehow quite how good Jake Gyllenhaal is as Mr. Music. I, I think that's my favourite performance of his. Like, unironically, like, he takes us on a real journey. Um, so I'm now wondering whether flowers exist at night and I'm glad that <laughs> I'm glad that David Byrne felt okay after being nervous about the volcano. How are you? Mm-hmm. I, I'm good, yeah. Just thinking again about how good Jake Gyllenhaal in, is in that and how I've really enjoyed his move over the last couple of years to kind of go for some real wacky over-the-top performances like there's that there's his performance in Okja where he's just pitched to a thousand (laughs) it's not you know he breaks the scale with how big he goes in that and how that's kind of nice because only a couple of years ago you were seeing him like you know get shredded for Southpaw you know like a really gritty boxing movie and that for me at the time, I thought saw that and thought, you know, is he going to just be another Christian Bale, like constantly shifting his weight and getting ever more serious? So that the years since then have gone completely the opposite direction, I think has been an absolute delight in a, a career <laughs> that has kind of gone in so many weird different directions for him, like for him to have settled into this groove of like, I'm just going to be a big old weirdo. <laughs> yeah, and I love that John Mulaney in interviews, I think it was on Good One, Vulture's excellent podcast, talking to comedians about specific jokes as well and, mm. and uh, their writing and their career through, it's kind of like Song Exploder, but for gags, and therefore I'm just, that's entirely my jam. Stick another round of toast on. But he talks about it being like, okay, I think this guy's weird. I think he mm-hmm. really likes being weird. We should let him be weird. Um, so yeah, keep keep Hall weird, please. <laughs> Other than that, uh, I think kind of like the big thing for me this week culturally, well, there's two of them. One is that I've just been playing a ton of Super Mario Galaxy because Nintendo just re-released it as part of this three-game collection where it's Mario 64... Super Mario Sunshine and Super Mario Galaxy and Galaxy is the only one of those three that I haven't played before because I didn't have a Wii when it came out and that's just been such a joy you know it's such a fun game it's so visually beautiful it controls so well all the weird stuff they do with gravity in that game is like really fun to kind of like play around with and mm. they do such a good job of transferring the Wii mo- motion controls that were part so part and parcel of the original game to just being like oh yeah just use the 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 switch touch screen and it's fine and you know what it works really well for that so i've really been enjoying that that's been a nice thing to kind of like dip in and out of over the last few days and i also decided to start re-watching the sopranos from the beginning which i haven't done in about 10 years or so i think was the last time i watched it all the way through but friday would have been James Gandolfini's 59th birthday and lots of people online were sharing tributes to him, you know, posting clips of him uh, acting, you know, there was, or or, uh, not just in The Sopranos, but like that great appearance he did on uh, Sesame Street where he and Elmo, uh, uh, may not be Elmo, he's hugging him up it and it's lovely. And (laughs) it's so like, that made me think, man, I haven't watched The Sopranos in a really long time. I should really watch it. And that has been so good. It's been such... It's it's weird. Uh, I remember someone tweeted ages ago on Twitter, which is where you tweet, uh, <laughs> obviously, uh, that about Kirby enthusiasm, just about how they found the rhythms of the language just so soothing, and how it was like just kind of like such a nice thing to yeah. hear for them. And I feel such the same way about <laughs> the Sopranos, which is like not. on the surface like a cozy comfort sort of show because it's like horrible people doing horrible things but i just truly love like 
sinking into the language of that show and hearing people like talk and have these conversations and the malapropisms that they drop in in there uh one that i don't think i'd ever noticed before but popped out this time was uh tony describing himself as saying hey i'm not hannibal lecture which is just a (laughs) a wonderful wonderful mistake and so that's been it was very much like okay i'll watch the pilot and then you know kind of treat this as a slow thing (laughs) within like a couple of hours it's like oh i'm four episodes in and just remembering how much i love this show so that that's been a really nice thing to kind of like dip back into and also kind of reminding me about when i first watched the show which is that i borrowed the vhs's from my granddad who owned the first two series on on vhs thinking boy that was a long time ago now that i can just like stream it on hbo max yeah wow that's so nice i I mean this is complete sacrilege ed but i still haven't finished the sopranos so i should probably do that and then go to the beginning again on twitter where you tweet i saw someone (laughs) um and it it, it totally blew my mind i was like 59 he would have been 59 he was 37 when he started in the sopranos Mm. like he's the same age as Jake Gyllenhaal (laughs) (laughs) and like and it's and it just goes to show like because because I think and that's not really a kind of like oh he looks so much older it was the absolute swagger with which he held himself and Mm. in in being Tony who was just like the most (laughs) middle-aged baby boomer sort of character you could ever hope to to find and I think, yeah, that kind of melody of a show and its dialogue, mm. music, music everywhere, as Mr. Music taught us. But there's a really great a guy who, who did like the rhythm of comedy. I don't know if you've seen it, but there's one where he sort of drums along to the rhythm of Fleabag season two, Hair is Everything speech. Mm-hmm. And you get like, oh, yeah, this is the inflection and the intonation and the rhythm and pace that helps part of what makes this funny and the performance, but the writing. And yeah, I think there's something incredibly, incredibly comforting about rewatching something, even though it is incredibly dark. I think The Sopranos is one of the funniest Mm. series out there. And I always felt that it's much darker moments aren't really indicative of the character of the show. Like just like Adriana's whole storyline, for example, is like, such a sort of I mean it's such a tragedy but she is so thick bless her and so (laughs) and so devoted and like and her and her demise really packs a punch but there's something about it because it's been so funny Mm. and, and absurd like it highlights her naivety and vulnerability I think in a way that if if some moments hadn't been played for humor you wouldn't feel the tragedy as much Mm. yeah i think that's why one of my i hesitate to say favorite episodes because it's it's just so like devastating but one of the ones that always really stuck with me is the episode i want to say there's there's one episode called college and there's one episode called university and i always get them mixed (laughs) up i think it's university which is the one where half the story is told from the perspective of one of the dancers of the Bing. Yes. And you see the way in which she is, like, treated by Ralphie, who's, like, very uh, uh, abusive towards her, and how she has kind of got stuck in this situation and how, you know, she views Tony, like, kind of as this, this father figure. And then at the end of the episode, she ends up being, like, brutally killed by by ralphie and which has this like cascading effect later on in the series when uh when tony kills ralphie where he's like saying you know she was a, where he ralphie presumably has killed pio my uh tony's horse although it's it's never like stated outright it's just assumed mm. that he killed uh the horse for the insurance money and when Tony's killing her, he mentions something about, you know, she was a beautiful creature or something. And like, there's this, that double meaning there where in the back of his mind, he's thinking about this like young girl who died pointlessly because Ralphie's just such an absolutely awful sociopath. And that episode always really hits really, really hard because so many, you're, you're seeing characters like Silvio, who is always such kind of a convivial character is so much fun to be around. 
but he's always fun to be around because he's always around Tony and he's always going to try and be fun to be around around Tony because Tony's the boss and he doesn't want to lose favour with him. But when you see him dealing with the girl who ends up being killed, like you suddenly see that sharper edge to him as being the, the guy who is in charge of running the Bing and all this sort of stuff. And that's so effective because you've become so used to seeing these characters from only one perspective and only really understanding them through that particular lens. And that's something that the show, I think, was always really, really good at. Was, yep. like you say, balancing the light and the dark and making the dark feel darker because of how much yeah, how much fun it is. You know, it is a hugely enjoyable show to watch. The characters are fun to be around. Their jokes are legitimately hilarious and the performances are really good. Mm. So, yeah, The Sopranos, good. Still good <laughs> after all these years, if anyone was wondering. Uh, so we'll go on to the... News now, uh, it's a much lighter week news-wise than, than last week, which, yeah, obviously we had to just do a whole episode just about news because of how how packed it was. But there were still a few things. Uh, the Creative Emmys have been held this week. Uh, the Creative Emmys obviously are kind of the less high-profile awards that get handed out you know, every year. Obviously, the Emmy ceremony itself hands out all the big awards and the Creative Emmys because there are so many different facets of a, of a TV show that can be awarded, get handed out in a ceremony previously usually it's like a two-night gala but obviously you can't have people meeting together so they've been doing it over five nights as a a series of live streams hosted by Nicole Byer and there have been some interesting results uh, out of it I think certainly for for you and I I think one of the the best bits of news is that Maya Rudolph finally has not one but two Emmys for just being great <laughs> i think in general but specifically for being great in big mouth for her vo- voice work on that and for her guest appearance on saturday night live playing kamala harris which both of which i think are like really good performances from her and there's there's that nice sense of like on the one hand she should have had emmys by now because she's always been such a game performer and she's someone who's just so much fun to watch that she should have won by now so this kind of feels like justice but also on the other level thinking yeah but both of those she's really really good in so it feels deserved both in the moment and just in the sense of like you know she's been around now for 20 something years you know she should have an emmy in other uh, other kind of fun results uh deborah hansen won for her costume work on Shit's creek the uh, particularly for the contemporary costumes which i think is a, a nice thing to break out versus you know the oscars just you know costumes because uh when the oscars do it costumes always it means like regency gowns yeah like they they tend to be uh valued quite highly versus you know the difficult work of trying to come up with contemporary outfits that look good and that are distinctive and i think Shit's creek more than pretty much any other show currently going is probably the show that most embodies the the way in which you know the aesthetics of costuming can be so impactful and so useful in shaping a character completely and i think the amazing thing about deborah hansen's work on Shit's creek is that is exactly that that each character is so recognizable simply Mm. from what they're wearing and how quickly she developed that but also what's incredible is that everything that moira rose wears almost acts like a visual punchline Mm -hmm. yeah but she's but she's not a joke and 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 yet it keeps it keeps coming like every scene she, she goes through so many costume changes like every episode and yet it's still funny there's always something it's like a wig or a really you know just how she stands out from everything and i just never get tired of it it just it just keeps me sort of smiling as i'm as i'm watching and you know the gag rate is also pretty good in shit's greek mm. and yeah i just think it's the best costuming work i've seen in a comedy as well in particular and you're right it's really nice to have that distinction because again oscar worthy films in terms of costuming there is you know the oscar bait for costumes is period mm. but but rarely is it i mean i also thought you know black panther was absolutely stunning yeah in terms of its costume work across the board but yeah in, and again yeah in terms of like content and themes it's like oh 
sad or worthy or white people fix things. No, we don't. Mm. We've made it so much worse. (laughs) Can you ever really fix a problem that you've created? (laughs) Do you get claps for that? I don't think so. But yeah, it's, I was particularly pleased to see Deborah Hansen get it because obviously Schitt's Creek has, has finished as well. And it's nice to have like this full run of sort of retrospective appreciation of, I mean, I mean, what, what other comedy do you, can you think of that's known for like its costumes? Like that's incredible what she's achieved. Mm, yeah. I'm just trying to think of any particular ones that really stand out in that way. And there isn't really, like, I guess you could say something like Parks and Rec does a really good job of giving everyone that distinct outfit and wardrobe. So you kind of, but it doesn't really feel like it functions much as a punchline, except in yeah. individual moments, like the joke about uh, Ron's red shirt after he has sex. Yeah, and just... Leslie's pantsuits, and mm. that's kind of built up over a while. And, and I think, like, the only thing that I can think of comedy wise is I think the young ones always really struck me because again they're like very distinctive characters and absolutely who each of them are but they still also look like real people Mm, and I think that's the balance isn't it you don't want to make someone look as if they're not a real person and it's like kudos to uh, Catherine O'Hara for definitely wearing those dresses and not the other way around (laughs) as Moira (laughs) In other Emmys news, and I think we're all we're so happy to see this happen. Obviously, we've all been pulling for them for the whole time, but Quibi have won some Emmys. Much, <laughs> much support to them, everyone. The real underdog story of the year. Quibi, obviously, uh, as, as we mentioned, I think back when the nominations came out, they had a lot of nominees in the short form categories because no one else really seriously contests those. Um, they, they tend to just kind of get filled in by like random web series and things like that. So uh, if you're putting out just like dozens and dozens of short form shows that have fairly high profile people in, then you're probably going to have a good chance of winning some of them. And so they won too. They won uh, Best Actor and Best Actress in a short form uh, work for Lawrence Fishburne and uh, Jasmine Cephas Jones for the show uh, Free Ray Sean, which you know is great uh, for for those two. Obviously, it's always nice to see people recognise that Lawrence Fishburne's a great actor, yeah. and uh, Jasmine Cephas Jones obviously is is great as well. Uh, certainly, anyone who's kind of familiar with Hamilton will be familiar with with her work sort of early in the early days of that show. But yeah, it's just it's just really. Funny to see Quibi win awards, considering yeah. what a kind of uh, rolling disaster that app and that service have been. Uh, it was it was also a good night for the uh, Cephas Jones family because Ron Cephas Jones also won an Emmy for Best Guest Actor in a Drama for his work in This Is Us. Although it was marred slightly because the way they've been doing this is obviously everything is pre-recorded and they have speeches from all of the nominees prepared to go live and yeah and they have announcements with each eventuality and for most of the five days that they were putting out handing out these awards they went off without a hitch but in that category they accidentally said that jason bateman had won and uh, it was a very funny clip of it where they someone clearly in the booth is like oh shit and like turning it off like five seconds in so that it gets cut off part way through which uh is is quite funny it's nice to see that uh even when you have everything kind of like planned out and you're doing it at this leisurely pace over several days and it's all kind of controlled people still mess up (laughs) award shows still have the potential for chaos and finally, uh, this was uh, an award that, or a nomination that I think you and I talked about a fair bit at the time as being uh, much deserved. And uh, uh, this win is also much deserved. Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross won for their score for Watchmen, one of the great TV scores of, of recent years. Another great addition to their body of work as, as composers that they've kind of been doing very prolifically since the Social Network score 10 years ago netted them an Oscar. And this, uh, one of the nice things about this is it also gets Trent Reznor closer to being, uh, obviously closer to God, but also closer to uh, getting an EGOT, which is not something that I would have expected to ever happen, given, you know, who Trent Reznor is. <laughs> but, you know, he's 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 getting close. He's getting very close to it. He just needs to, you know write the score for what I can only assume would be an extremely oppressive musical. 
And then uh, in non-Emmy news, and in kind of the ongoing saga of the coronavirus and what it is doing to the entertainment industry in terms of scheduling and when people want to put out movies, Disney have kind of intimated that Black Widow might be delayed. Obviously, it's already been delayed several times from May, March this year was when it was originally meant to be going out. I think it was like two weeks out from its release date before it was pushed back to later this year. So now it's getting pushed back probably to late next year. And then they've also suggested that Soul, the new Pixar movie, might go straight to Disney+. Plus. With both of which are not surprising, given how most theatres in America are still either not open or working at reduced capacity to kind of try and meet social distancing. But even within those terms, people just aren't going to see movies. You know, Tenet has done fairly middling over here and it's not doing like the sort of numbers that you would really need to, you know, rescue the theatre uh, the theatre industry over here and so it, it's not surprising that Disney would maybe take a movie like Black Widow which would be a surefire hit and push it back to a time when more people to go and see stuff but Soul going to Disney Plus is quite interesting in light of how well Mulan has performed on that platform you know going there for $30 clearly I may, I'm not there's no indication that that's the model that Disney would follow but Presumably, that would be the way they would go for a new Pixar movie, which obviously has that family appeal and probably makes a, a decent bet that people would be willing to spend thirty dollars to to buy that in advance rather than take their their family to a movie theater. Yeah, it's hard to beat, and I think particularly with even just the logistics for a family to go to the cinema, mm. right? Like you. Are you, are you driving? Is there public transport? Is there parking? How much is parking? Are you going to get the snacks? Mm-hmm. You know, it can become like a whole a whole day out. And I think it's it's fundamentally different for me as a un undependented <laughs> person, <laughs> where I like the, the the literal cost for me to go to the cinema. You know, is basically the cost of the ticket. Because um, yeah. I tend to try and walk everywhere, trying to avoid mm. public transport right now. Obviously, I've not been in the cinema. This is the longest I've gone without being in a cinema in my life, and it's oh god, it's all uh, okay. Sorry, I'm going <laughs> to pull myself back from the existential brink. Whereas you know, because the thing is, as nuts as it sounded for Mulan to be what was it thirty dollars on top of the yeah, subscription model the- anyway. Yeah, $30, yeah. Which, uh, and I'm going to lean on your um, American uh, citizenship here, Ed. Sorry to sort of turn you into a bureau de change, but <laughs> I'm closing the bureau for an hour. Um, sorry. Uh, but roughly how much would that be in in squids? Uh, I think it would probably be about £25, which, something in that range. Which, you know, is probably the cost of two cinema tickets and mm. and none of the extra costs of the yeah. of the you know the systemic thing of like parking or you know food or anything like that and the returns on Mulan have been unbelievable which i did not expect <laughs> because mm-hmm. i again it was like why would people pay for more money and one that everyone is saying you should boycott and all this but it's there isn't it and we're all here um so it you know it is a much more fish in a barrel kind of situation and i think soul as well because um just from the trailer it looks like a much more kind of you know along the lines of kind of inside out so Mm. sort of definitely a lot there for adults but for kids as well whereas i think you know mulan's definitely the kind of well it's the gritty live action remake isn't it um at least in in tone so i wouldn't be surprised if soul does incredibly well on Disney Plus just off the back of how Mulan's gone down. Mm. I think it also was one of the big successes early on with this model was Trolls World Tour, which, as you know, mentioned before, didn't make as much as it probably could have made with a theatrical release, but still made a decent amount of money and has like hung around in the VOD charts for a really long time. And I think 
you know, that's one of, that's the kind of movie that will fare fairly well, well that will do fairly well with those with that system because like like you say it's good for a family viewing it's probably cheaper than all of the rigmarole of actually going to a cinema particularly you know depending on where you live like $30 to see a movie is probably not that far off like what it would cost for you know one ticket to go and see a movie in New York where the prices are often exorbitant so yeah. it obviously makes a huge amount of sense for, for families to do that and you know if you have the family friendliness that obviously made Trolls World Tour kind of hang around and do really well with the might of Disney and the brand kind of recognition and reputation of Pixar you know that's a good recipe for the movie to do really well and you know as as was the case with Mulan you know Mulan has done fairly mediocre business outside of the US so far. It had a very disappointing release in China as a direct result of a lot of the controversies about its filming and particularly the regions of the country where filming took place, which has led to a lot of an outcry in China. And uh, sorry, has led to an outcry outside of China. And so the Chinese government have kind of, they've kind of had a blackout on a lot of discussion of the movie, which has obviously hurt its box office. So... That has, which is obviously ironic because I think that was clearly one of the big things Disney was hoping for for Mulan was like for a big hit in China. So, and if it had opened it in theatres over here, you'd probably see a similar result to something like Tenet where, you know, maybe does well on the opening weekend, but then falls off fairly quickly because even when you assure people that things are safe, still a lot of people are going to be like, no, I don't really want to go watch a movie right now. I will wait for it to be available on VOD. So walking for it to have made somewhere in the range of like $90 million, which was the estimate that I was seeing uh, being batted around. But it's towards the kind of like the higher end of and best case scenario for Disney, given that they were, they didn't really have a lot of great options for putting the movie out other than, just delaying until things are back to normal and like you know who knows when that'll be yeah for sure so speaking of china ed the other Mm. bit of news we have for this week is the appalling treatment of john boyega by joe malone Mm, yeah where to start the 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 sort of uh john boyega was being hired as like a like a spokesperson or the sort of face of a new Joe Malone scent called like the the gentleman or something like that scent of a gent something but they basically gave him creative control to cre- mm. to make his own concept and it's a really beautiful piece of work like and quite moving in terms of like this really interesting weave and and mix of kind of the area of uh, South London where he's from, it's so vibrant and fresh. And I think perfume ads are always so wild because I'm just like, but none of this tells me what it smells like. And this is the first time where I was like, oh, I think I can actually get a sense of what this might smell like. So I feel like um, he did an amazing job there. And there's lots of him on a horse and everyone was just like, oh, we need we need our Regency uh, John casting. And I was like, we absolutely do. Um, I mean, it's it's clear that you, you can tell I think he's the best. Mm-hmm. Um, and how he's been through Black Lives Matter protests, how like incredible and feeling and and giving and being part of his community that he is in this call to action and being so like very transparent in a very classy way about Star Wars. And mm. the kind of double-edged sword that that is for an actor like him. Yeah. Of his background, of his race. And then, yeah, so this amazing, this amazing advert. And and I can see how whoever sort of thought of that and thought of John and he said yes. And obviously it went really well. And then it turns out Joe Malone recut it in China, basically taking Boyega out completely. It wasn't even recutting. It was basically stealing his concept 
Mm. And and sort of having basically the worst bits of it with a very with a with as far as I'm aware, and correct me if I'm wrong, an an unknown Asian actor. Because China's really racist. <laughs> like mm. the like like the world is. And it's just, I mean, John Boyega again handled it incredibly well but it's just this this absolute pandering to to racism in a market because they think it's not gonna sell and like the original joe herself i believe uh, hasn't been with the company for a long time but i just don't get like like they're what did they think was gonna happen what like john wouldn't find out like china shh don't call John. Mm. Like, we don't live in that world. Like, how is he not going to find out? How was this not inevitable as soon as they made that decision? And, you know, if if they were canny, which I don't think they are, you'd be like, we're going to get a a range of actors, of young actors that we find really exciting from various different countries. So it wasn't like John Boyega was going to be the only one, you know? Mm. Like... And I, I ain't in advertising, as you can tell. I'm like, why don't we make the adverts about how it smells? No, Emily, that's not how perfume, perfume ads work. <laughs> um, and even I'm like, like I'm a doofus, Ed, as we all know. And even, <laughs> and even I could see this. Of course, that was going to happen. If it, oh, oh, sorry, John, you're the best. Yeah, it's definitely not like you know. There's the old like cliche thing about movie stars going over and making adverts in japan back in the 80s because they're like ah no one will see this i can you know like uh, tommy lee jones can sell coffee or whatever and, oh. like no one will ever truly no will ever truly see. the boss coffee i love those ads <laughs> i unironically they're just great yeah they are so good and it's it's so wonderful seeing that he did it for so long <laughs> like yeah. it's such a a long-running thing that he has with that 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 company um but yeah that that whole thing like that you also see, obviously, Lost in Translation kind of like touches on this as well, where the idea of you go over there and no one in America will see it, so it doesn't matter if you're doing something like super duper embarrassing. Like, you just can't do that anymore. These things will get out. You know, the world is connected, and the, this, like, like you say, this obviously would have come to the fore eventually, and it just really, it just really sucks. <laughs> it's totally. such because again, it's like, oh, you're so concerned about the Chinese market, which let's not forget massive but then i think i think they've decimated the rest of their markets <laughs> mm. yeah absolutely it just seems like such a bad faith thing on their part yeah for sure and that seems like it would really poison the well for a lot of people who would otherwise either would have had like a positive association with the the company in the past or people who like maybe this is literally the first time I've ever heard of them is like oh they did that really horrible thing to John Boyega and it was really awful and our final bit of news uh just kind of a fun one I obviously a few weeks ago recommended Harley Quinn the show from DC Universe which was the which it still is technically you know an app that Warner Brothers in DC set up where it was like hey we're going to like produce a load of shows based on DC properties and you can sign up for them and watch them and no one really did uh, because that's you know in, in terms of niche streaming services that is perhaps too niche but when HBO Max launched this summer or this spring uh, all of those shows were included as part of the bundle so they got a lot more attention and shows like doom patrol and harley quinn found like a fairly big audience as a result and those shows uh, this week at the dc fandom which apparently is still going on which is weird there seems like something that you could only really do for a couple of days but apparently it's been going on for weeks uh, they it was announced that doom patrol and harley quinn are both getting third seasons uh which is great news because i think harley quinn's such a wonderful show i think that it had such a strong second season and it ended in a way where you could kind of think you know if the show doesn't continue on i'm happy with where they're leaving things but it's just really nice that they are continuing on uh, but also it was announced that the dc universe service is not going to produce original shows anymore it's going to mainly focus on comics which probably makes sense because whilst there is a there is a a place for like more niche streaming services you know obviously Shudder and the Criterion channel are doing like reasonably well in catering to kind of a specific audiences who'd be interested in the stuff they put out I think making a 
app dedicated entirely to trying to just make adaptations of DC properties was probably a step too far and kind of bundling it into the broader, much more widely seen and widely used HBO Max app probably makes a lot more sense. Uh, And that takes us on to our main topic this week, which is the state of streaming. Uh, I thought we would check in on how uh, the streaming landscape is kind of holding up this week, mainly because of a story that broke earlier in the week about the Amazon Prime series, The Boys, which is an adaptation of a comic book series that last year debuted its, its first season as a lot of streaming services do, with all the episodes dropping on one day so people could watch them all in a single sitting. But for its second season, it debuted the first three on a single day and then the subsequent five were being shown week to week. And as soon as that became apparent, the show got review-bombed by fans being like, how could you do this? This is 2020. How could you force us to wait a week for TV show for TV episodes? And, you know, kind of like driving down the average rating of the show on Amazon as a result. And I thought it was quite interesting, the obvious tension between how people have been conditioned to expect TV shows to that, that debut on streaming services to come out and what actually might be the most beneficial for streaming services. Because I think what Amazon are doing there and making this shift is they are looking at the success of the Mandalorian last year, which on Disney plus aired its episodes week to week and really dominated the cultural conversation as a result, because people were watching the episodes and then talking about it and sharing theories and, you know, the each new review or article that came out generated lots of hits and, you know, kind of fed this feedback loop where every week more people were thinking, Hey, I should check that out. Uh, versus, the, the usual cycle that occurs for, for shows that are released all at once, a la Netflix, where the season debuts, most people watch it all in the course of like two or three days. They talk about it for those two or three days, maybe a week afterwards, and then it kind of fades from view. And mm. I think it's, I do think it's very interesting that we've reached this point where I think the Netflix model has kind of hit a ceiling and is really kind of that you can really see the limitations of how they approach their shows and other services are thinking, hey, the way that people always put out TV shows before, maybe that continues to work and still be a viable model. Where to stop the state of streaming, the state of it, Ed, would you believe? Mm-hmm. I think the thing about review bombing in particular, which is to start with the boys, is... I wasn't like massively au fait with it as a practice. It was just kind of in researching this and being like, oh yeah, that's what that is. Mm. And it's incredible that looking at the actual content of the reviews, it's not just out, you know, uh, was it something like 46% of the reviews are one star? Yeah. But the actual detail of the review written down is saying it's just complaining about the release schedule. It says absolutely nothing about the content or quality of the show and uh, I really enjoyed the first season of the boys I haven't watched this second one yet because again Amazon Mm. Mm -hmm. but it's just hard not to see it as like the worst kind of entitlement that funnily Mm. enough the boys itself is trying to I think touch upon in its kind of alternative superhero very anti-capitalist message again the irony upon ironies that it's on fucking amazon it's it's not a good look is it i i I don't understand i wonder if trying to be as charitable as possible i think you're right in saying like sort of how have we been trained to expect how to receive things because of the digital Mm. landscape and the impetus and importance like there are very few tools for people to kind of wrench attention to one specific point of the internet right and if you're releasing a show and one thing is to just kind of do do it the old-fashioned way Mm. i mean i the the I'm trying to think when sort of like the idea of like 
binging really happened and pre-streaming it was box sets right yeah you'd get like the whole dvd and then you know a whole series or a couple and and i would do that but like even before that like the only the closest i got to anything like binging was the omnibus of eastenders at the weekend Mm -hmm. which was like almost like three hours worth (laughs) And being like, God, this is so boring. I want to watch something else. Oh, Sunday. <laughs> I want to go to school tomorrow. I hate, I hate everything. And that was wild. The idea of like, who would sit there and watch like two and a half hours of this show to sort of, cause, but, but that was it. It was catch up. Mm. That was the kind of catch up model. Um, and it was, you know, a quiet Sunday afternoon. What else are you going to put on? Songs of praises probably along in a minute. You, you you have all that stuff there but that was it it was it was the, the eastenders omnibus was sort of catch up before i player and uh hoping that certain things would be repeated that was that was how it was kids or you'd go to the bbc store and, and buy your vhs's come around and listen to uh this crotchety old woman screaming on her porch at the clouds but even vhs like technologically there was such a limit to how much <laughs> binging was possible completely because <laughs> well, binging I mean... would have been watching like what three episodes of the simpsons or something yeah yeah of course because uh, the the simpson compilation tapes i would have you'd have four episodes on it mm, too hot for tv i remember that one <gasps> being where it was like oh these are the ones with the jokes that they wouldn't play on the bbc yes that was um i had too hot for tv and it caused a um it was it was another point of contention for my divorced parents because my dad didn't <laughs> think i should be watching it but i was like it's my precious thing <laughs> I took it, and I took it uh, to stay with him. So yeah, very strongly worded letter, and and maybe a bit more chat to the lawyers. So there you go. <laughs> worth it, worth it. I I love that bloody tape. But I remember like saving up all my pennies and getting the Futurama VHS box set of like season one. I think I had on VHS, mm. and that was just like this huge, but like they're called a box set for a reason because they were fucking massive boxes. Oh, VHS cartridges. I'm being nostalgic (laughs) for something that wasn't that great in terms of technology, but it was what I had. And I think, yeah, with streaming now, it's really interesting that it's, it's basically like, why, why should you have instant gratification for everything? Mm. And, and, you know, and I think there's something about the language of it as well, because we call it video on demand, right? And people are demanding things and feel that they are owed them. (laughs) Yeah. Um, whereas I was thinking back to sort of the real sort of deep middle of lockdown in the UK and I May Destroy You being released and that feeling mm. of like, oh, it's Monday, there's going to be a new I May Destroy You and how that just like lifted my spirits no end. Mm, <laughs> and yeah. for that show as well, because each episode is its own little world and I think it has the most incredible like reach over the entire series but it felt like I could actually appreciate I think two episodes would yeah it was two episodes of each week and I could just sit there for an hour and be in Michaela Cole's world that she created and I really savored it in a way I'm not sure I would have done even though I think it's very difficult to watch that show and not have all of your attention on it Mm. I think that was a really important model. And again, because there was, because each episode had so much in it for just like to even scratch the surface of the conversation that each episode <laughs> brought up and to, and to have a week. Yeah. It felt like, um, it felt like an education in the best possible way. It was almost like a mm. course. It's like, here is this module. Here's your, here's your, I don't want to say lecture. Cause it's not like, not Han- Hannibal Lecture or like you know <laughs> um, hectoring or but but like just this absolutely stunning nuanced work and then to have a week and for like everyone in in America and the UK because it was across like Hulu and BBC to be on that similar kind of schedule was really phenomenal to pull off I think mm. and I and I enjoyed it and I think that's the first time where I was like oh yeah because I think with Netflix I remember you know, the dark days before Netflix originals, she, she snorts. So much of that was stuff that had already been seen. It was like mm. this new, it was this new library um, of, you know, I was like, oh great, I I can just watch all of Nighty Night. <laughs> mm. and, and 
because I had already seen it. Of course, I expect it all to be there. I think it's really strange when something's released now that's entirely new. It's like, why do you think they are just going to drop it all at once? And is that mainly just Netflix's model that with the originals that other people have? And it's interesting to see what what properties are staggered in their release and which are just given all straight away. You know, there's there's choices in that too. Mm. Yeah, the only Netflix properties that I can think of that had a staggered release. Well, I guess like um, it's not technically a, a Netflix property, but you know, like Better Call Saul airs on AMC over here and then airs the next day. You know, the episode releases the next day on Netflix in the UK. And like, so that that's kind of like, I guess that's an exception to the rule when they have an international agreement to show something. It's like, okay, well, you know, like we would have all these available when it becomes, when it's released properly. But as it airs, people have a chance to watch it and they did that with Breaking Bad as well. But in terms of their originals, the only ones I could think of were like the topical stuff, like the uh, Chelsea Handler had a talk show on there and that was week to week because that's how talk shows work you know you yes. <laughs> respond to stuff that's happening uh, i think the michelle wolf show was also you know in, in that and obviously uh, uh patriot act was kind of built on that approach as well and ironically like patriot act feels like the netflix show that got the most attention as a result of a lot of or that kind of remained in the cultural conversation longer than a lot of their other shows because even their mega hits like a uh, uh, stranger things mm. like they will only really command like discussion online for a couple of weeks at the most like and and then you know they recede and then people don't really talk about it as much compared to you know a show that's airing you know eight episodes over eight weeks or whatever and I do feel that if you're looking at shows, the, the shows in recent years that have really caught people's attention, that really kind of like fired the imagination and that like really spurred a lot of discussion on life line are the ones that have gone weekly. If you think about, you know, your favourite of mine, Twin Peaks The Return, like so much about what made that show so special and watching it over the 17 weeks in, or however long it was, in 2017, was that the episodes would air, everyone would immediately jump online and try and say, what the fuck was that? <laughs> and just, you know, kind of read articles trying to decode what was going on. And, like, so much of the fun of that show was the discussion it, it created, was seeing the the discourse around it, the reviews, the critical writing of which there was so much. And similarly last year, uh, Watchmen as well, which was this like real cultural moment um, for, you know, eight weeks or, or whatever. And those were both shows that had real dense qualities to their storytelling. They had so many elements that you could really pick over. And both, I feel, would be lessened by the experience of if you release them all at once like Watchmen it would be still be a very good show if you if HBO had decided hey we're going to release this all at once and you can watch it in a single sitting should you so choose but I really feel like it would not have had quite the lasting impact going into this year as well you know like where people have been looking back on it and drawing out so many parallels between it and our current situation in the US had it not been allowed to stake out a claim where every Sunday there would be a new episode and then the next four or five days would be people you kind of like writing about it and trying to pick it apart and I, I do feel like that is a thing that Netflix's whole model the binge model misses out is that so much of what makes TV great and what makes it so compelling as a medium is the discussion around it and when you release everything all at once for a show that period the window of discussion like pretty much always ends up being very short it's weird because i haven't had a tv as in an actual mm. television since maybe 2011 mm -hmm. i've just always watched stuff on the internet and you know i visit other people's houses well in the in the before times obviously mm -hmm. and actually having a tv set i feel is like such a it really 
has dropped in terms of being a focus point for, I think, our generation. Mm. Like, we grew up with it, but I'm not like, oh, where's the TV going to go? And, like, technically, I have a monitor, and me and my flatmate have the PS4, and we'll watch stuff. So there's still, like, a bigger screen that we can <laughs> we can join round. And I think I'm quite unique in the sense that I still pay my TV license. <laughs> right, yeah. Because I'm not against that and I believe in it's like maybe if it was sort of rebranded as like crowdfunding telly <laughs> for the people and I have a lot of issues with the BBC Ed mm. many but I still I still think I should pay people for their work <laughs> and again it's yeah. it's kind of a it's a misnomer as well because a TV license also is all of the radio and all of the mm. BBC's educational resources and i like that i'm into that funnily enough cut me and i bleed red as we all do we're all socialists really ed come on and i think there's an amazing speech that russell t davies did i want to say it was at the edinburgh tv festival maybe five years ago where people are talking about like the hbo subscription model versus the license fee and he was like comparing HBO's programming for the week versus the BBC and everything else on top of it. And that really brought it home to me in terms of like actually what incredible value it is. And even though the BBC, I've dropped off watching a lot of it and a, mm. and a lot of what I have seen has been co-productions with Hulu or HBO, you know? So in terms of, like, BBC-only programming, I still feel like I'm essentially watching a Hulu show, you know? Mm. But on but on iPlayer, because there's just so much other stuff available. So, yeah, like, dip, dipping in and out of what's available on Now TV or, um, you know, I've got my movie, UK TV Play... So if I can catch up on a lot of funny stuff there, Channel 4. Um, whereas before it was really only iPlayer, before Netflix, I remember. Like, I was on iPlayer all the all the sodding time. <laughs> mm. So I don't know. I think, sorry, that's like a roundabout thinking out loud way in terms of like, I mean, I don't see how, you know, the state of streaming, but it's also, I don't see a way of it coming back from being the future because now what it's also taken on in the wake of the pandemic as we've been discussing is all of cinema as well Mm, not just like catch-up films but like releases and immediate and i wonder in terms of is that going to spoil audiences even more because i think there's a there's a huge difference between making something truly accessible proper subtitles audio description not prohibitively expensive because if i if Mm. i think if i think of all of my streaming platforms put together i mean oh god oh i'm thinking about it too much in terms of how much (laughs) i pay just for streaming versus how much i pay yearly for a license fee like we know which one's more expensive but there's a difference between making things properly accessible and then people feeling entitled to some, I just don't understand why people don't un, don't get that they. I mean, maybe they want to, but like in in the example of the boys, just sound like whining. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's not. I, I just mm. think of all of the ways to to sort of complain and hit back, and I guess that's wrong. We're talking about it, and it's no, it's been noticed, and it's inconvenient, but also that that could mar your enjoyment of a show. I just I cannot get my head round. Yeah, because like. If you want to watch them all in a row, you know, you wait a few weeks. Yeah. <laughs> like, watch that's something the inconvenience. else. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't cost you anything extra. You just have to wait a few weeks and then they're all there. Or you can watch them as they come out and, you know, take part in the, the, the discussion of it. Which, I don't know, seems like a richer experience for me. Because, like, if I think back on shows that I have binge-watched, that, that are original, like, because, like, there have definitely been, like, you know, like, I used to watch... 
yeah, I used to put like DVDs of The Simpsons on to like go to sleep at night and yeah, would just same. kind of like ha- have like seven or eight episodes play out or something. And like I'd already seen all those episodes like tons and tons of times. So it didn't feel so I was just kind of like, again, to go back to what we were talking about, like the rhythms of comedy and things like that, you know, like something very comforting about these very familiar words and images kind of flitting across the screen. And binging those for me didn't feel like I was kind of getting a lesser experience because I was just like re-experiencing something I've already seen but in terms of like watching shows for the first time I really don't feel like the shows that I did like watch in a single sitting really lingered all that much because they are produced in such a different way to how we think of television like there's not as much attention paid to paid to like making sure each individual episode stands out and really grabs the attention so there is kind of like a a mushiness to them um the only like maybe the only example i can think of is is like mindhunter but even yeah. then like that was a show that i deliberately took my time with so i didn't watch like all of a season in a day i watched like a couple of episodes and then just kind of like dipped in and out and that was that felt like it made more of a lasting impact because I was able to watch the show and kind of take in what it was trying to do the ambience of it the story in a way that felt like it had been thought of as a collection of individual episodes that should be able to stand upon their own as opposed to you know the cliche of like oh it's an eight-hour movie whatever which is like you know that's not really how television works and it's not really something that you can pace like it's way more effective to be like okay yeah this is like eight one hour stories that add up to like one broader story and that'll probably have a greater impact and again to go back to the Sopranos that's why the Sopranos was such like an amazing feat in the each individual episode you can point to and say like oh yeah that's the one where uh, Christopher and Brandon hold up the uh, suit the the suit truck and kill the guy you know like there are individual things you could point to that are part of the single episode but also you know have broader implications over a long period of time and i think i feel like the hey we're making an eight hour movie or whatever approach to that a lot of streaming services take particularly a lot of the stuff that you see on on netflix like stranger things prevents them from having those like standout episodes that really kind of linger in the mind so we end this episode as we end all our episodes of Shot First Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? An episode of the Seventh Row podcast, because if anyone's mm. listening to this, I think you might enjoy people talking about films in podcast format. It's their most recent episode um, focusing on misbehaviour, um, but then using that as a springboard to talk more about civil unrest or mass protest on screen particularly in the sort of British film tradition and it was fascinating you know looking at pride and suffragette and kind of how do these on the most part publicly funded films how do they feed into sort of like particularly Britain's idea of itself as being kind of radical and good and fighting the good fight it was fascinating. So yeah, seventh row. Cool. I'm going to recommend a documentary that I watched this week on HBO Max called Class Action Park, which is about the Action Park theme park in New Jersey, which operated throughout the 70s and 80s and is fairly notorious for being incredibly unsafe and resulting in a lot of injuries and a few deaths. But having this kind of like nostalgic view of it from all the people who went there as kids who were like yeah you know obviously it was horribly dangerous and we were taking our lives in our own hands but you know at the same time you know it was like made you feel alive and it's very fun very funny it's got some good talking heads particularly uh, chris gefford who features in it a bunch as, as someone who grew up in jersey and used to go to the park a lot and it's just like it's not particularly deep in any like meaningful way but it is a lot of fun to kind of hear all these people tell these like wild stories of rides that on the face of it you just look at i think yeah this is not a thing people should be (laughs) riding on obviously this is going to cause tremendous pain and just like providing you in as much as the sopranos does you know in some ways a, a cultural uh biopsy of 
the New Jersey mindset <laughs> in a way that I think is is really fun. So yeah, so that's Class Action Park. Uh, it's on HBO Max. If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, all the usual places. Raters, reviewers, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. <laughs> <laughs>